And I'm delighted to welcome you to the start of the IFG's day of events, PAC day at the Conservative Party virtual uh, fringe conference. And I'm sorry for the slight uh, late running of this. Uh, we had a slight uh, technical hiccup, um, not entirely uncommon on this. For this first discussion, I'm really so pleased to be joined by Michael Hesselfine, Paul Hesselfine, who has given a very, very important introduction to this audience. But as you know, was an MP from 1966 to 2001, has been an uh, energetic commentator on all aspects of government policy, but particularly economic, industrial strategy, and of course, Brexit and future relations with the European Union. Paul Hesselfine, very warm welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's uh, good to be back at the Conservative Party conference. Something we might we might come on to, but let me let me start with what seems a really inescapable question these days. What, what is it reasonable to expect of a government handling coronavirus, and how do you think that this government has has stacked up on that? I think the government's got a nightmare problem. It has to balance the uh, economic viability of uh, uh, everything that we do uh, with the uh, responsibility to save lives. And, and it is a balance, and there are downsides, whichever decision they take. But my own view is, is a pretty simple one. I'm not a scientist. I have no specialist knowledge of the subject. And I believe the government is doing as good a job as is practical in all the circumstances, and it's simply not up to people like me to sort of bellyache from the touchlines. Uh, I, I don't know that I would do anything different, and I have no way of knowing if I would do anything different. So I give them my support and pray to God that uh, within the next 12 months we have a vaccine and this thing is behind us. But of course, the, the other thing that is uh, to be said about COVID is that it has completely dominated the agenda. And the underlying double whammy, the second whammy of Brexit and how we cope with the British regeneration of its economy, that's just been lost to sight. And I'm afraid a lot of time has passed which should have been used to put in place constructive policies to deal with this much longer term and bigger problem. Well, let's come on to that that point. Uh, I'm interested in your first discussion, your first answer, that you feel that the balance that the government has got between, if you like, supporting the economy and trying to deal with this, as you said, nightmarish crisis, is, is, is broadly right or one that you wouldn't second guess. Um, but let's come on to the, 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 the economic policy. And as you said, the government came into office with a very ambitious agenda for uh, levelling up and for developing uh, parts of the country uh, and for developing uh, industry in a way that, as you've just described, has been blown aside. What do you think uh, it needs to uh, revive and, and hold on to from that agenda? Oh, I have no doubt at all that what they should have already have done and ought now to be doing is to set up a coordinating committee of the principal uh, government's responsible departments responsible for economic policy. Obviously, the Treasury, uh, the trade and industry, housing, education, and uh, uh, others who have a stake in this debate. They need a powerful minister in, in charge of it. And the second thing they need to do is to recreate the regional offices of government 
The government departments are all over the place and they ought to be co-located in the particular region, say Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle, wherever it may be, uh, under a senior civil servant to bring about coordinated policy because there is no coordinated policy. That is a very important part of what is missing. The next thing they should do is to embrace the mayors of the big conurbations in devising and designing the policies relevant to their economies. They're all very different. Uh, designing the policies relevant to regeneration in those areas. And when they've done that, they will have a significant part of the country covered in industrial strategy and economic uh, initiatives. That right. leaves so the non population problem areas where they should go for unitary counties with directly elected mayors, and that would cover the rest of the country. All right, so that, that's very interesting. I mean, that, that is, if you like, a structural answer to this of how they should go about having these discussions, as you said, as a local level, as you said, uh, all of these answers are going to be different. But can you um, give us a sense of, of exactly what you think that means at at least some of these local areas? Does it mean more money? Does it mean more freedom to spend that money locally? Does it mean uh, investment in science and technology, as this government is very enthusiastically saying? Um, and how do, how do you fit this in with trade deals that the, the government may be wanting to do? What, what's the actual content of, of what it ought to be doing, supposing it had got together a structure, as you've described? Well, I think, Bronwyn, the mere fact that you press me to answer reveals the problem that there is not a simple answer designed in Whitehall and imposed by civil servants on, uh, in a conforming way across the country. That's why you have got to get people in charge of the local economies, Manchester, Birmingham, Newcastle, Bristol, Plymouth, uh, the Solent, uh, into the debate because they know, first of all, the strengths and secondly, the weaknesses. They know the opportunities and they need to design policies based on future projections as they see it uh, in order to give the maximum stimulus to their economy. Now you ask the key question, is there more money? It, it isn't a question of more money, it's a better use of the existing money. Uh, at the moment what happens, and you're seeing this government doing it as well, is that they come up with some scheme which has been designed in London and then they put that scheme regardless of whether it's relevant to the individual requirements of the local economies. If you take uh, where the problem begins, actually, education and skills, big parts of our provision of education and skills are not up to standard. They're not world competitive. And there's a sort of tolerance of, of this relatively low performance, which is absolutely unacceptable. And someone should be in charge. Well, I believe quite clearly it should be the local mayors, because there's no use thinking that the Department of Education in London, who have presided over this relative failure for decades, is going to deal with the issue. All right. So let me, let me ask you this. We're, we're talking here about decentralisation uh, within England. Uh, but we've had 20 years of, of devolution of powers to, to Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. How do you think they have performed, particularly you're talking here about education? Well, and, I, and attracting industrial investment. I, I think it's very interesting that actually what Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland have done under the, the heading of devolution is actually to replicate Whitehall in Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast. 
they have not devolved to their individual economies. There isn't a Welsh economy. There are four, possibly five Welsh economies, and there has not been any devolution that reflects that. The same applies to Scotland. You think Glasgow, Edinburgh, self-evidently, but Dundee and Inverness and Highlands, these are separate economies requiring separate solutions and initiatives. So we've not seen actually devolution. What we've seen is a compartmentalization of Whitehall. But doesn't that, um, isn't that always a possibility if you, if you provide for decentralization that actually it doesn't always happen in the way that you would think uh, or the well, way that I you want, want it to happen? I don't believe that devolution is absolute because there are so many areas where central government is in the end responsible and you obviously take massive capital programs which have to be funded and distributed uh, on behalf of the government and taxpayer. Uh, so actually devolution is a partnership but the balance of the partnership today is absolutely top down and what I'm strongly in favor of and what actually is the replica of what's happening in every other advanced economy of which I have any knowledge is to get the local experts, the local business people, the local public sector people, the local universities into teams which coordinate the way policies are initiated there and make them then come forward with their plans and on the basis particularly of how much local money will be added to what the government can afford. Even in the darkest days of 1981, when I was at the front line of all this, in Liverpool, we were getting one and a half pounds for every pound of public money. In London, in the Docklands, we were getting 10 pounds of, of private money. So gearing, as well as the local relevance of the scheme, and the coordination of strengths is a very important part. Look across the world, every government works on this basis. I just want to pick you up. I, I, mean, I think you would get a lot of support from many quarters for that, that kind of argument. But I just want to press this point about the, the, the devolved um, uh, nations, regions of, 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 of Britain, uh, if you like, because we're coming into a year when uh, the, the Scottish elections um, in particular, are going to attract an awful lot of attention. And the government has the very firm desire to hold the union of the United Kingdom together. And I wondered what advice you would give uh, the government um, and indeed the devolved governments about, um, about how to get that to work. Well, I'm afraid it goes back a long way and uh, the poll tax has a bitter memory associated with it. There's no doubt that a very serious part of the Scottish independence grew uh, on the hostility of Boltax. And the Tories, uh, I'm afraid, have not, until Ruth Davidson came along, produced people who seemed to talk in a language that was sympathetic to the Scottish people. Now, Ruth Davidson made huge progress. Uh, sadly, she has uh, decided she cannot continue in that role. So the job can be done, the Conservatives can recover, but frankly, they've got to do it in a way that appeals to the Scottish people. And 
what do you think that that is? You've got the government here, Boris Johnson's government, wants to hold the union together. You're making a powerful argument for decentralisation, and I understand we're, we're talking uh, in your example mainly about uh, about the England uh, context, but we do have this very live question. Um, do you think the government ought to offer more devolved powers? Well, I think that uh, that's I, I, I wouldn't take that off the agenda because. Uh, what I'm arguing for is very significant increases in devolved powers to the English local economies. Um, I, and I, I think it's preposterous, frankly, that Birmingham and Manchester, bigger economists than Scotland, are shackled to Whitehall in the way that they are, whereas the Scots have got a degree of independence. So I'm in favour of a bottoms-up approach. What can be done locally, what is relevant locally, uh, should at the very least have a significant local input. And the more power that it can have, the better I shall feel. Because, you see, this all this issue about levelling up, uh, if you think about it uh, and think of the words, what's it mean? That some parts of the economy are going to be levelled up. How do you do that without levelling down the ones, the other ones? And does it mean that London is being held back in order to help the Midlands and the North? Well, that would be a preposterous concept and, frankly, quite unworkable. Um, so, basically, levelling up is the wrong word. What people really want is to feel that their areas are being developed to the maximum potential of the people there. They want to feel optimism. They want to feel that someone's on their side. They want to feel that the ideas that are being put forward are working and are tailor-made to their economy. Does coronavirus actually offer an opportunity for that? I mean, do you think the government is going to have to reach more to the local level at some point? Well, I think that the coronavirus thing has had one of those uh, seismic effects that are usually associated with war. It hasn't, in my view, created new things. It has merely accelerated trends that were there anyway. Uh, if you take the high streets, it's quite obvious that people have been moving online or out of the high streets into periphery shopping centers. That now, has the little white van is everywhere. We're told the drones are coming. Um, so that's one very obvious one. People, I don't believe that working in offices, massive offices, will ever be quite the same again. First of all, a lot of people have discovered that uh, if you had 100 people, only 50 of them were in the office at any one time. <laughs> it, it, it became very obvious. But in addition to that, there are a lot of people who can work from home who actually work in, in, in part-time circumstances more effectively from home. It saves them a lot of traveling time, but that actually means that you've got trouble with the major transport interfaces. Um, so there have been all sorts of changes, and there'll be many others, uh, particularly in the development of the internet. So uh, let me give you one that I find exciting, but I don't think the government is onto it. Um, look, this conversation you and I are having, it's a one-to-one. -one. God knows how it comes about out of the ether up there. But in schools, the old idea of one teacher talking to 30 people with a formula of uh, presentation of the subject, I, do, I believe that's going. The teacher should have electronic capability to adjust what they are saying to the aptitudes and interests of each individual student. 
And that would deal with the students who find it hardest to concentrate, get them in some way interested in the subject. I don't know how it would be. I mean, I, I, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was a slow learner because I was bored, to be frank. If you had had lessons which taught me to count by showing me birds in some way, you'd have got my interest from the earliest ages. Now, this is fanciful stuff. Basically, it's very simple. You go to the great British educational publishers and you get them to do deals with secondary schools or primary schools in this country. And you say, look, you help develop the technology to tailor make bespoke education for children of all aptitudes and interests. That is a world-class opportunity. I'll give you another one. Water. Our rivers are not clean. They ought to be clean. And if you were to say, I, I think it should happen in Liverpool, clean the Mersey, 25 years from now, there will be no discharges into the Mersey. And we're going to make it a world experimental site. Uh, the cost, it's going to be paid anyway over the 25 years because all capital equipment will be replaced within 25 years. But if you tell people they've got to high, have standards that are absolute, then people will prepare. Consultants will come, small businesses will start up, initiatives will develop, and you'll be able to sell this British initiative worldwide to the world which, in my view, democratically will demand clean water within a quarter of a century. Let me ask you, so you mentioned in that very interesting long answer, the, um, the question of planning and, uh, and, and a bit what's happening to the high streets. And the government has brought out uh, plans, uh, suggested plans for uh, much more house building. Um, what, what, do you, what do you think of those plans? And what, what, is, what is central government rightly going to do about this? And what should local government do? The, uh, there is no doubt we need more housing. And I think there are two things that I would say. First, the maximum use should be made of existing land as opposed to taking new land. And that will need a very concerted government endeavor. If you look today at the situation, land is held in quangos, in government departments, all over the place, in local government, in the health service, on the transport systems. And it, everyone knows where it is. But what does not exist is a powerful body who has the ability to say that site is going to be absorbed into a housing initiative now. Uh, and that would be a scream of indignation across Whitehall because they all want to hold on to it. At first, because they hope to sell it and get the money for their own departmental purposes. But the, 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 there is no machinery in government to deal with this. Now, you could deal with it quite quickly by putting the local authorities, the, the elected mayors, in charge of identifying all these sites and then presume, introduce a presumption, they're going to be put up for development and let the owners resist and say, why not? Uh, you could do that just in the public sector and it would release incredible acreages of land. Uh, my second view is that uh, if you're going to intrude into the green belt, and there may be cases where, frankly, it isn't as green as you might think it was, 
then you should do a deal with the public. You say, right, every acre of uh, green belt, despoiled green belt that we take, we will reclaim 10 acres of despoiled land and turn it into green. So uh, there are lots of things you, should, you could do, but uh, you, you've picked up several times in what you've said. This is all about management. It's not about just a sort of rush of blood to the political head. And what is wrong with this country is not the civil servants. I am appalled by the way that uh, leaks come out of number 10, uh, vilifying the performance of our civil servants. The real weakness is ministerial, that ministers for all sorts of reasons, too few of them have run anything, too few of them are prepared to break cover and stand up for what they believe to be right. Too few of them are too ambitious who want to get on to the next job. Just if you, people, I see all this stuff about the number of civil servants who change jobs. You look at the big jobs of secretaries of state. Look at the, the number of industry secretaries we've had, the number of housing ministers we've had. Mm. And before they're in the, sitting at their chairs, they're on their way. Mm. It's something the, the Institute points out a lot, and indeed we uh, offer ministers uh, professional training or training in how to think about being a minister, if you like, because there's so many that have come from, um, quite understandably, from other backgrounds and suddenly pitch up in this job, uh, which is uh, a very difficult one and takes time, uh, the point that you've just made. Um, I'm, we're going to go on a few minutes because we started late. Um, I just want to ask you about um, Brexit and the Prime Minister has said that we can more than live without uh, a deal with the EU. Your view? Well, you know, my views are well known. Brexit is a disaster. It's an unmitigated disaster at every level, economically, particularly. Britain is opting out of the top table. And all this stuff about a glorious future is just for the birds, frankly. Everybody knows that the world is shrinking. Giant economies are emerging who can afford things that we will never be able to afford alone. Europe may be able to. I created the European Space Agency in the 1970s because I could see what was happening. And as minister responsible then, I was asked to subsidize for six million pounds something that the British were doing because the French and Germans were doing it as well. I asked a simple question. How much does Europe spend on space in total? And how much does America spend? I'll never forget the figures. Europe, the total lot of us, 200 million a year. America, 1.2 billion a year. And this is where technology, technology is injected through into the private sector. The American space program, the American defense program, buys technology for their industrial base on a scale beyond mm. human imagination. The Chinese do it a different way. So where are we going to be in 5, 10, 15 years' time as a relatively small economy trying to push the technological frontiers? Do you think the government is wrong in its emphasis on science and technology and what government can do to encourage that? No, I'm, of course they should be keen on those things, but there won't be the financial resources to keep Britain ahead, mm -hmm. uh, especially if we go on selling our companies without ever asking any questions once they make a success of those things. And let me just ask you, because we're going to have to come to the end um, pretty soon, but I've um, had a couple of questions in 
uh, from people wondering your views on the next budget. Now, the next budget obviously is not going to be next month, November, but in the spring. And really goes to the question that is um, threading through a lot of this Conservative Party conference, which is um, what makes um, the Conservatives conservative, if you like. Is there a point at which the government should say, look, we really have to do something about um, uh, addressing the national finances uh, and, 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 and therefore look at raising taxes and so on? I think that that is right. I think the Chancellor has been innovative in trying to cope with this very difficult situation, but I'm appalled by the effect it's having on public finances and it can't go on. There'll be a price to be paid. And I think that um, this is early in the Parliament. We've, I think we've lost a year, but there's four years to go. And it would be much better to put in place a, a much more realistic appraisal of what taxes need to go up um, and what cuts in public expenditure need to be made um, and take the flak now. But you've got three, four years in which to deliver the sort of results. But if you don't incorporate the sort of changes that I outlined at the beginning about how we manage this country, then I am depressed about what the consequences could be. If we go on like this sort of thinking that you can just buy your way out of trouble without the structural changes we need, that, I think, will cost us dear the next election. And so do you think at this point that there is really um, a clear distinction between Conservatives and Labour? How would you put words to that? Well, I think i tell you where the, where the truth of the matter is. There's a clear distinction between the extreme of the Conservative Party and the extreme of the Labour Party. But the real world in which I inhabit and have inhabited all my political life, it's much harder to see where the boundaries are. And uh, that if anything has emerged out of this COVID thing, that has become a, a abundantly apparent. But you only have to look at the scale of public sector intervention in the private sector in any economy in the world to realize that partnership is the essence of the game. Working together, building on one's strengths together, all the things that I did in those dark days of Liverpool and onwards mm. were about creating partnerships, about drawing the public and private sectors together. I mean, how the hell do you advance an economy technologically without your universities? And who pays for the universities? The taxpayers do. So, uh, you know, how are you going to advance in aerospace, in, in uh, uh, industries of that sort, which are largely financed by defence programmes, unless you realise the interrelationship between the two. And you can go on and on. And if you think of the big industries of tomorrow, uh, wind, for example, the big environmental industries, uh, there is a huge interface of public sector activity involved, even in housing, which is on the agenda. Industrial housing will need force feeding in terms of contracts to get the private sector into the business. But if you want improving the supply of housing, particularly low-cost housing, industrialization of housing is an important part of the solution. 
Well, on that, uh, given that real world deadlines are definitely um, impinging on us, even if we're, we're acting virtually, we're going to have to wrap it up. Um, Michael Hazeltine, thank you very much indeed for joining us at the start of this. And for everyone watching, um, sit tight for our next event, which is at 9.30 and is absolutely relevantly, given what we have just been discussing, it is on how government can take its manifesto forward in the world after coronavirus, which is not yet with us. Um, again, Michael Hesseltine, thank you very much indeed. Thanks all for your questions and, and for joining us. Thank you very much. <laughs>